Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be covering logical fallacies. Now, we had a very early podcast called Types of Arguments, and we did cover a couple of logical fallacies in there, but that was in the context of discussing what types of arguments one can make for open theism, just just the categories. This podcast is going to be dedicated to just logical fallacies. And we're going to start off with what I see as the most common fallacy when I am engaging people, when I'm talking to people. This is what's known as the moralistic fallacy. And we've got two related fallacies to this. The dignum deo fallacy and the argument from adverse consequences fallacy. The moralistic fallacy is summed up like this. It is a confusion, a conflation of what we want to be true with what is true. Let's say there's kids in this world who have bone cancer and die. Now, we don't like that. No no one really likes that. Maybe it's like a psychopath or something. But normal people don't like that. But to deny that this happens, saying, well, this never happens because that would be really bad if that did happen. That's the moralistic fallacy. Our wants and our desires have no effect on reality. We've talked in a few of our previous podcasts about this reoccurring Calvinist argument that, oh no, if God can change, then we cannot be assured of our salvation. Therefore, we need to reject open theism. That's, that's not a very good argument. Because, because our desire for whether God can change or not has no effect on reality if God can actually change or not. What we need to do in order to figure out God's attributes and characteristics and, is look at some primary evidence, not our thoughts and desires. And guess what? When we're basing things on our thoughts and desires, people can have differing opinions. Some people could say, oh, I think God is bodiless and omnipresent and in everything. And then someone else could say, that's not the best God. I like to imagine God as this this fluffy pink kitten. And that's the best God that there could be. When you conflate what we want to be true with what is true, There's no limits to what kind of arguments you can make. And it's all subjective, and none of it's based in reality. As the anti-social justice warriors say, facts do not care about your feelings. Put your feelings aside when we're dealing with statements of fact. Your feelings have no part in that. Very much related to the moralistic fallacy is what's known as the dignum deo fallacy. And this fallacy is mentioned in one of William Lane Craig's books, Contending with Christianity's critics, answering new atheists, and other objectors. And open theists get their own chapter in this because apparently, according to William Lane Craig, open theists are like atheists, you know. But anyways, anyways, in this article, it says, Openists have a theory about why most Christians nevertheless believe that the scriptures teach exhaustive foreknowledge. One, traditional non-openists start out with an a priori criterion of what is worthy of God dignum dio. They then identify verses that are most sympathetic to this a priori conception of God, employing them as control texts for understanding other biblical passages. Three openness-friendly passages are subject to accommodationist hermeneutic, which assigns them a non-literal sense for the result of this expedient is strained exegesis. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty accurate. Here we have a non-open theist using the term dignum dio to mean what it means. And what it means is 
an idea of God that is fitting. Dignum Dio. What is dignifying God? What attributes dignify God? What kind of God is the most dignified God? And if you get a bunch of people in a room and they just sit around just trying to philosophize about who is the best God, what kind of attributes he has. And I've been to these conferences. I went to that randomness conference and that's what they did. They sat in their rooms and they got out uh, their paper and pencil and they all just sat around and they argued what would make God the best possible God that one can imagine. As you would expect, because facts don't care about our feelings, this is not a particularly good way to do theology. And everyone came with their own opinions. There are Calvinists, there are Arminians, there are open theists, and they all have equally likely claims because their basis is in subjective preferences. That's what it is, subjective preferences. And they're arguing subjective preferences. It doesn't make sense. It's a form of the moralistic fallacy. It's a dignum dio fallacy where you're projecting what you want God to be like as what God truly is without any reference to any real evidence. You're just, you're just conjuring in your head how you want God to be. And of course, people come up with different conclusions. Maybe I want a pink, fluffy, bunny God. And maybe someone else wants a God that's dynamic and pantheism and in everything and controlling and moving and synergistic ways. And the Calvinist wants this modernistic God who wants to control everything. Our preferences do not have any effect on reality. It's good to know the name of this fallacy because when you're talking to these people, they think they're all scholarly. And then you say what they're saying is a fallacy. And a lot of times they get triggered. They want to come and be the expert and you're bowing down to their wisdom and, and how good of a theologian they are. And then you say, that's a fallacy. And they get triggered. They, they don't like it. They like to be the top of the conversation. That's another really good reason to know the fallacies, what they're called, and how they operate. So you could call out people, people who are full of themselves, when they start spouting fallacy. People who want to actually have a conversation, probably not the best idea just to point out the fallacies. You might say, have you considered maybe this, this might be a logical fallacy and explain to them the fallacy. But just straight out calling out fallacies is usually reserved for people who, who are, have very high opinions of themselves. Along the same lines as the moralistic fallacy and the dignum dio fallacy is an argument from adverse consequences. Argument from adverse consequences, just like it sounds. And I was in a meeting of dispensationalists, and we're talking about dispensational theology. And then I made a statement about Paul and his relation to the Twelve. And we read in Acts 21, Paul goes to Jerusalem, and he meets with James and the elders in Jerusalem. And they say, Paul, look at what you're doing. You're going around, and you are teaching Jews not to circumcise. Remember our deal back in Acts 15, our deal that you would go to the Gentiles and these are the specific things you would teach. Our deal was not that you would go to Jews and teach the Jews not to circumcise. Circumcision was alive and well. And so in order to get Paul to refute, to repudiate his past, however many years of ministry, they made him undertake a humiliating ritual in the temple to prove to prove to all of Israel that he was not teaching Jews to circumcise. And that's exactly what he was teaching. He was teaching the Jews not to circumcise. And so 
I, I explain this, I go over this, and, and this is a scholarly opinion. You could read it in Aslan, Riza Aslan's book, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. It's a scholarly opinion. And what was their response? They said, that can't be true. That can't be true because then you have Paul disagreeing with the 12 disciples. You got Paul disagreeing with James and the 12. And I said, yeah, yes, you do. Yeah, you can't just reject what you read on the pages just because you don't like the outcome of what it says. That's not a good argument. You have to look at a textual argument. Show me from the text why that's not the case. Don't just tell me an adverse consequence. And the guy who made that comment, he's one of those gut feeler guys. He's, he's more intuitive and he likes to shoot from the hip. And he doesn't step back and try to th divorce his emotions from his opinions. Switching gears to open theism, switching gears. The Calvinists will say, well, if God doesn't know the future, then things will take him by surprise. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It might make you worried and it might bother you emotionally, but your emotions have nothing to do with fact. So let's just think of about it this way. Just pretend, hypothetically, God is sometimes taken by surprise. You, you could point to the Bible. You could say that does happen in the Bible. But just for this hypothetical, what if God is sometimes taken by surprise? You, as a human being, now you're going to reject that and you're going to say, no, God's never taken by surprise because I have this emotional attachment that God needs to be totally secure in all his knowledge and never taken by surprise so I'm going to reject the truth because I have these preconceived emotions about what God should be like to make me feel the safest and the best. It's not a rational argument. It's an emotional argument. And facts do not care about your feelings. If you're talking to an overly emotional person, someone who gets worked up pretty easy and cries pretty easy, you probably don't want to lead with that. You probably might want to direct them to ways that God changing and being dynamic is better than a static dead God. And then just, if they're still resistant, just talk to them about the logical fallacy in a nice way instead of just throwing them under the bus and then backing up the bus and just ramrodding them. But it's a logical fallacy and people shouldn't stop making it. Again, that was the argument from adverse consequences fallacy. Our next fallacy is one of my favorite because it is literally titled the worst argument in the world. If you Google that phrase, you take that phrase and you put it into the Google, worst argument in the world, this will come up. The formal name for this fallacy is the non-central fallacy. And the basic premise of this fallacy is when you try to take an outlier, which is part of a group, and then portray that outlier like he's an average member of that group or an average descriptor. For example, for example, is Stephen Hawking's ignorant? Is N.T. Wright ignorant? Is James White ignorant? I mean, whoever my listeners are, maybe you, there's someone in your life that you'd say, oh, they're not an ignorant person. But when you're talking about God to Calvinists, they say if God doesn't know one thing, that makes them ignorant. And they'll go to the dictionary and they'll say, look at this dictionary here. And they say, so by your standards, God is ignorant. What they're doing, what they're doing is they're taking a technical term and applying it in a way that's not standard in order to apply it to God. And so you're lumping in what we consider an ignorant person. 
maybe someone who doesn't know anything about economics and they're talking about economics on Facebook, maybe someone who's like racist talking on Facebook. These are ignorant people. You don't just consider everyone you know ignorant. And especially you don't consider God ignorant, especially when he has a lot more knowledge than you. So even if it meets the technical definition, sometimes those are bad descriptors. And literally this is called the worst argument in the world. I'll give you a couple of examples of non-central fallacies as well. Let's say there's illegal immigrants in the U.S. and people say, well, they are illegal immigrants. They broke the law and so they're criminals. Well, you know, most people think of criminals like people who thieve and people who steal, not people who violate like copyright law or people who violate some sort of speech code or people who violate some one of, one of these other arbitrary three crimes a day law. You know, all of us Americans, we commit three felonies a day. We're not all criminals. We don't think of ourselves as criminals. We're not criminals. And we think of criminals usually as the violent types, people who are doing really destructive things. So calling illegal immigrants criminals, maybe there's a subgroup that it would be more applicable to. But just, but just because someone violates the law, breaks the law, does not make them a criminal. And calling them a criminal is probably going too far. And in the worst argument in the world, in their example, they use Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. could, yeah, he's technically a criminal because he violated laws doing civil disobedience. But calling him a criminal and trying to discredit him as a criminal because of civil disobedience, that's the worst argument in the world. A non-central fallacy because you're trying to take our preconceptions, our emotions that are attached to this, this central idea of this group and then applying it to outliers of that group. So that's really funny. So a Calvinist says to you something like, well, if God didn't know the future, then he would be ignorant. You could say to them, that is literally the worst argument in the world. If you take the phrase worst argument in the world and put it into Google and hit enter, your first link, your first couple links are going to be about this non-central fallacy, the worst argument in the world. Because even though it might fit the technical definition, it doesn't fit the common use definition. And our emotions that are attached to the standard member of that group are wrong being applied to God. So what it's trying to do is it's trying to misdirect, misapply our emotions to outliers in a group. It's the worst argument in the world. And watch them squirm. They're making literally, literally the worst argument in the world. And it is hilarious. You see their faces when you call them out for making the worst argument in the world. And how are they going to respond? No, that's not the worst argument in the world. Well, Google the worst argument in the world and then see, yes, you're making the worst argument in the world. That's a terrible argument. You, you should be ashamed of yourself. The worst, literally the worst argument in the world you are the one making. <laughs> And just watch it. Just watch when you're dealing with people because this is often made the worst argument in the world, especially in conversations about God. If God had this attribute, then he would be this worst argument in the world. And you shut that down. You're saying that's a bad argument. It's a fallacy. It's a terrible, terrible argument. In fact, there's no more terrible argument than what you made just now. The next fallacy that we're going to be dealing with should be familiar to everyone. This is the ad hominem fallacy. It's from the Latin against the man. 
The ad hominem fallacy is when you use personal attacks to undermine someone's argument. You're saying someone's argument is false because of who they are rather than rather than dealing with the actual argument. Like I'm on, on some Calvinist sites and I will make arguments and they'll say, are you an open theist? It doesn't matter who I am. It does not matter. The only reason you want to know this information is because you just want to try to discredit me based on who I am. You want to engage in ad hominem fallacy. But I'm not going to let you. Just pretend for sake of this conversation I'm an atheist. doesn't matter who I am. Pretend I'm an atheist. Deal with my arguments. What are my arguments and can you respond to my arguments? Don't care about me. I don't care about me. I don't care about what I believe. They'll, they'll try to say, what do you believe? I don't care about what I believe. I care about what the authors of the Bible believe. So let's deal with the text and deal with what they're saying. And let's just forget about who I am. You don't need to know anything about me because we care about arguments. Not everything that people claim is an ad hominem fallacy is an actual ad hominem fallacy. There's just normal personal attacks that you could do against someone. I could jump on someone's webpage and say, you are an idiot. As long as I'm not saying no one should listen to your arguments or consider your arguments because you are an idiot, that would be the fallacy because the, those two things have nothing to do with each other. The argument has nothing to do with who they are as a person. The argument should be evaluated for what the argument says. If the argument's idiotic, you could call it out, say this is your argument and it is idiotic. These are the reasons why it is idiotic and you are an idiot. See, then it's not a logical fallacy because you've described every single step of logic in the chain. For example, I was dealing with a Calvinist and I read Acts 13.46 to them. He wanted to go to Acts 13.48 and pretend that God's appointing people and not appointing people to eternal life. And I said, the verb's in the middle. These people are appointing themselves. Let's turn back to 13.46, two verses earlier, and let's read what it says. Since you, this is Paul, and he's talking to the crowd, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So the people in this context are judging themselves unworthy of eternal life. The guy refused to answer the question, who is judging whom unworthy of eternal life in verse 46? Would not answer. Yeah, it's okay to turn to ad hominem at that point, saying you're just... You're illiterate, you hate the Bible because you will not answer simple Bible questions. And sometimes you need to do that, especially with very caustic people, shut them down. And the more that they pride themselves in whatever you're insulting, when you have an actual complaint against them and they're not answering simple questions, the more that you focused on their unwillingness to respond to simple things that like anyone can respond to, the more you focus on that the deeper you're going to push them, the more humiliation you're going to give them. And this, this is a tactic for people who are full of themselves. It's not just for just anyone, especially the people who actually want to have a conversation, a legitimate conversation. You don't want to use that. But, but know what an ad hominem fallacy is. It is discrediting an argument based on who a person is rather than the content of that argument. Our next fallacy we're going to be dealing with is argumentum ad populum. This is an appeal to the people. It's the appeal to the masses. It's saying this is a very popular view and so it must be true. Calvinists will do this. They'll say 
you know, open theists are in the minority. Not very many people believe what open theists believe. Open theists are a fringe group and we shouldn't take them seriously. That is a fallacy. It's a fallacy. Popularity does not make something right. The majority of Jesus' time rejected Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior. Very similarly, the next fallacy is appeal to tradition. Appeal to tradition. If, you, if you've dealt with anything in the open theist movement, you understand this is a core fallacy of the Calvinists and the Arminians. They say, well, look at the church fathers. Look at the tradition. What did these people believe? And we should just believe whatever tradition believed. That might give you some evidence as to the trajectory of Christianity, but it's not a good argument for truth. It's not. And if they are claiming that's a good argument for truth, why aren't they Catholics? Are you dealing with a Catholic? Because the entire church was Catholic. They believed in the Pope and they followed the papal dictates from Rome. Are they Catholic? If you're dealing with Protestants, they should understand intuitively that our history has not always been correct, and sometimes the church has been utterly corrupted. So it is a fallacy, it's a fallacy of logic to appeal to tradition. And you see a lot of appeals to tradition. The next fallacy that we're going to go over is begging the question. A lot of people use this phrase wrong. They'll say, oh, you said this, which begs the question, and then they'll ask a question. That's not what begging the question actually means. Begging the question is assuming your position is correct, and then basing your arguments off of your position being correct. You are assuming what you are trying to prove. And this just happened to me in my previous podcast. I went over my debate about God, the future, is the future open, is it closed? And he just assumed, he just assumed that if there's any coercion involved in reality, then the future is closed. He is just kind of assuming that his position was true without showing evidence that that was the case. His, his entire position relied on this fundamental understanding of a closed and open future that I did not share. And he was trying to convince me of it, but he can only do that using arguments that the future is closed in circumstances that I do not agree that the future was closed in. So you don't want to beg the question. You want to figure out where you differ from your opponent, your critic, the person you're having a discussion with. Where is your fundamental difference and how do you solve that issue? Get the same priors, then you could have a meaningful conversation. Do not assume what you're trying to prove. And the next fallacy that we're going to be going over is one that I haven't pointed out as much as I should, but it's a fallacy nonetheless, and it's the fallacy of accident. And basically this fallacy says that if there's a general rule, there can be exceptions. And just assuming that there's no exceptions to general rules, that itself is a fallacy. So if an open theist says, yeah, God's not surprised, you know, there can be exceptions. Sometimes God can be surprised. And it doesn't undermine what the open theist says, that God's not taken by surprise. Yeah, general rule of thumb, that is the case. But there are particular exceptions. And remember, the exceptions prove the rule. It's a rule of thumb. It's not universal. And we need to stop thinking like the Calvinists, like the classical theologians where they just want this negative theology, these absolute statements. And if you do have an absolute statement, something that has to be true no matter what, one, one counterexample undermines it all. 
that it's an entire house of cards that comes crumbling down. If just one time in the Bible, God is taken by surprise, God doesn't know something, one prophecy does not come true, the entire idea of omniscience of all future events crumbles. But human beings usually don't talk in absolutes. So you say, yeah, God knows what's going to happen. God knows what I'm going to do. And yes, there are exceptions. Sometimes God says, I did not expect you guys to do this. You guys turned away from me. I did everything I could for you. I expected good grapes. Wild grapes were the result. I expected you to return and you didn't. That doesn't mean that God is always taken by surprise everywhere. This is the exception to the standard rule that God knows people, knows what they're going to do, knows how they behave and how they act. Yes, there are exceptions. To deny this, to assume that it's contradictory if there are any exceptions, or, or to just assume a general rule is an absolute rule, is a fallacy of accident. The next fallacy is the U2 fallacy, the two quoque fallacy. Two quoque, Latin, U2. So if I tell my kids something like, you guys shouldn't drink a lot of pop because you gain a lot of weight, it's not very healthy, and they say, but you drink it all the time, my hypocrisy has nothing to do with the merits of my argument. I don't tell my kids not to drink pop or anything like that. Well, that's just an example. If I were to do that, I drink a lot of pop. I like pop. It's good. If I were to tell my kids not to drink pop and they say, but you do that, that's a fallacy because it doesn't address my underlying concerns. My concerns were these health concerns that would negatively affect them. And those health concerns exist whether or not I'm engaging in those same risks. And this is a good fallacy because Calvinists use it a lot. Bruce Ware does it. And I'm going to also read, remember we were talking about that William Lane Craig book, the collection of essays, and one was against open theism and the dignum dio fallacy. Well, let's read from that book again. If you recall, the guy had just laid out open theist and how open theists discredit the dignum dio use of the Bible. And here's what the guy responds. I deny that these four points give open theists advantage. One, openness have their own conception of dignum dio. They don't hesitate to draw on it when the scriptures are silent. For example, if the open theists are right that the Bible doesn't clearly teach exhaustive omniscience with respect to the future, it's no less true that it doesn't clearly teach exhaustive omniscience with respect to past and present. Yet openness accept the latter. Why? Presumably because ignorance of any detail of the past and present would not be dignum dio. True, a lot of open theists have their own version of dignum dio. But, but, go back to the open theist argument. What's the open theist argument? The open theist argument is that certain people are using their conceptions of God and importing those conceptions on top of the text. Why don't we get a neutral third party to come in and tell us what they are reading in the text? Maybe people that are skilled in reading ancient texts. I don't know, maybe someone like the canonical critics, the secular canonical critics. But the Calvinists, they don't want that. They don't want a neutral third party to tell us their opinions about the Bible because they do not line up with Calvinism in the least. Everyone admits it. Every secular scholar thinks that Christianity was influenced by paganism, by Platonism, and they incorporated all these concepts of God from Plato. But pretending we didn't have these third-party neutral people to give their opinions of the text. 
A U2 fallacy is still a U2 fallacy. What is the criticism? How does attacking someone saying, you guys do it too, how does that address the actual criticism? Maybe, and here's what I'm saying, and here's what the U2 fallacy would claim, maybe both parties need to revise their ways, their methods, based on the argument that's been given. One side shouldn't be a hypocrite, true, but both sides need to take seriously the argument. And what the Bruce Ware types and the William Lane Craig types want, they want to say, oh, we both know we have problems, let's shake our hands, and then just agree to ignore these problems, and then now we just gained all our arguments back that you just refuted. That's what they want to do. And then they want to say, oh, by the way, you guys are heretics, and, and we just reject your entire, everything you say about the Bible, no matter what the text says, because we have the our reasons to dismiss the text. Real quick, we don't have very much time left. We're going to go over special pleading. Special pleading is when you try to make a special exception from normal rules, normal laws of logic, just for your own side. So when Calvinists are reading the Bible and they say, we got to read the Bible differently than any other text that we ever come across on earth because it's the Bible. What? What? That justifies you just bringing in wholly unwarranted ideas onto the text and just imposing your theology and then you're right and everyone else is wrong. That's a case of special pleading. No, there's nothing that, in, that we know of that says that the Bible needs to be treated differently than everything else that we are familiar with reading. And no, no one should take that argument serious. And that argument is evidence that that individual is in a cult. Because they say, we got our text, no one can read it like us, we're the only ones who can read it specially, and we can't apply anything that we know from our normal day lives, our normal ways of understanding to this. We need to believe, be part of this groupthink of our cult, that there's no foundation for, that's arbitrary, and we got our special in-law rules. <laughs> it's a cult. I had a lot more fallacies on my list, but I guess we don't have time to go over all of them today. Maybe a different day we're going to have like a part two because there's a lot of fallacies out there. Real quick, we went over the moralistic fallacy, which is tied to the dignum deo fallacy and the argument from adverse consequences. Facts don't care about our feelings. The worst argument in the world, trying to take a technical definition with very emotional attachments to that word and trying to apply that to an outlier who wouldn't normally be thought of as that word. We talked about the ad hominem, trying to undermine and say someone's argument is wrong because of who they are rather than based on what that argument is. Appeal to tradition, the fallacy that just because older people than us, basically in our tradition, they agreed with these positions and that that's right. We also dealt with begging the question, just assuming your position is correct without proving your position correct. Fallacy of accident, pretending there's no exceptions to a general rule. Two quoti, accusing someone of hypocrisy without addressing how their argument isn't valid to yourself. Their argument's still valid, even if they are a hypocrite. And then lastly, we dealt with special pleading, claiming that the normal modes of thoughts, normal rules don't apply to yourself, but everything else it applies to, just not yourself, you got a special exception to the rules. If you have any questions or comments on today's podcast, feel free to put that on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook companion page. Thank you for listening.